There's no there's no organic way to start a podcast. Like we still have not cracked that code. No, we really we really have not. <laughs> yeah, like I've I've been podcasting for like almost ten years at this point. Every time I start one, I still feel like the world's biggest idiot. Where I'm just yeah. like, oh, n- now I'm pretending I'm the radio. Like it's yeah. uh, it's a very <laughs> weird vibe. class that's morning spelled with a u because it's a pun aren't i great i'm andy sell you are listening to ghoul school a horror history podcast here on the unpops network and i want to thank you for that if you have a moment please rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and if you haven't heard i also have another podcast called look good for the boys with my friend philip We are in our third season right now. We're having a lot of fun this summer, and you should check it out. I am stoked for today's episode for a number of reasons. Our guest, Keith Carey, is terrific. The movies are a lot of fun. We have a good talk about them. And I'm kind of a little bit, like, shamefully proud, if that's a term, of the pick that I had. Keith Carey picked Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. The assignment I gave him for this extra dreadit was House 2, The Second Story. Both films were released in 1987. Both are horror comedies. And also, both are part of the La Casa series. Now, if you're unfamiliar with La Casa, it is an unofficial series of films in the tradition of unofficial Italian film series. Italy has something of a notorious history in the realm of what we call rip-off films or knockoffs or mockbusters or unofficial sequels or unofficial remakes. A lot of times these are through virtue of nothing more than the marketing behind a film and changing the title of a film, often applying the name of a more successful film with a part two or part five or something added on to it. Probably most notably, we have the Zombie series and the Demons series. But for my money, it probably doesn't get much weirder than the La Casa series, which started with The Evil Dead. Sometime in the summer of 1978, 19-year-old comedy enthusiast, short filmmaker, amateur magician, and Michigan State English major Sam Raimi took some friends, including Bruce Campbell, Rob Tappert, Tom Sullivan, and Ellen Sandweiss, to a friend's farmhouse in the woods outside Marshall, Michigan, with $1,600 to shoot something that could serve as a showcase of their talents to get work or raise money for future projects in the film industry. What they produced was Within the Woods, 
a crude but innovative 32-minute horror movie with themes of indigenous grave desecration and lots of homemade gore. They were able to convince a local movie theater to screen the movie before regular showings of Rocky Horror Picture Show. And on the strength of that, in the next two years, Ramey and company were able to raise 90000 to film a feature-length version of that film. They titled it The Evil Dead, and it kind of changed everything. Horror was one way, then The Evil Dead happened, and then you get the picture. For more on that film, listen to my conversation with Eric Barnes in a past episode of this very podcast. When it was released in Italy in June of 1984, The Evil Dead was retitled La Casa, meaning The House, and it was a huge success. It was only natural then that the sequel, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, would be titled La Casa 2 when it hit Italian screens three years later. Side note, Part of the reason Dino De Laurentiis agreed to produce Evil Dead 2 was just how successful that first film had been in his home country of Italy. In 1988, prolific director and producer Aristide Masacesi, also known as Joe D'Amato, had recently begun producing films for other directors using his Film Mirage production company, which, side note, Film Mirage was actually a company that Joe D'Amato acquired from Armano Donati, who had co-produced with Dino De Laurentiis before, and also produced the first Italian horror movie of the sound era, E. Vampiri, in 1957. Anyway, 1988, Joe D'Amato is producing movies for other directors, and for the first time, they are not adult films. Actual narrative commercial theatrical releases. Now, the first of these was Warrior Queen, a TNA sword and sandal romp starring Donald Pleasance and directed by Sam Raimi's fellow Michigander, Chuck Vincent. The second was Mikola Soavi's directorial debut, Stage Fright, a meta-musical theater slasher that marked a turning point in the Gialli cycle and which we will almost certainly talk about again on this show at some point soon. But the third of D'Amato's productions for other filmmakers was Umberto Lenzi's Riding on the Coattails of Poltergeist supernatural thriller Ghost House. When it was picked up for a theatrical rollout, the distributor, Achille Manzati, had realized that the previous year, La Casa 2 was a huge success, and creative title appropriation was at this point already something of a tradition in Italian film marketing. So Manzati decided to retitle Ghost House as La Casa 3. And of course it was a success. And D'Amato himself credited that success to Manzati's retitling. Naturally, this meant D'Amato wanted to produce a La Casa 4. And almost exactly a year after the release of Ghost House, Witchery, a.k.a. La Casa 4, opened in Italy. It starred David Hasselhoff and Linda Blair, and of course it had nothing to do narratively with any of the previous La Casa films. It was, however, directed by Fabrizio Laurenti, who would go on to direct the movie Crawlers, which features carnivorous trees that use their roots and branches to trap 
and kill people. Sounds familiar, right? Anyway, in July of 1990, La Casa 5, aka Beyond Darkness, was released in Italy. Not to be confused with the 1979 film Beyond the Darkness, which Joe D'Amato himself directed, La Casa 5, aka Beyond Darkness, was the last Italian-produced La Casa film. It would not, however, be the final film released as a La Casa movie in Italy. No, 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 no. That would be an American film called The Horror Show, which was actually released in its home country over a year before Beyond Darkness. But in Italy, it was released a month after Beyond Darkness. So guess what? It's a La Casa movie. So naturally, they titled it La Casa 6, right? Wrong. See, the horror show was initially developed as an installment of the American House film series, which started with House, of course, released in Italy as Chi è sepolto in quella casa, which translates to Who is Buried in That House, and continued with House 2, the second story. Now, even though the House franchise was intended to be an anthological series of unrelated stories from the second movie, the producers, including Friday the 13th and Last House on the Left producer Sean S. Cunningham, and the folks at Corman-founded New World Pictures, believed that the themes and subjects of the horror show were so radically outside of the house brand, they scrapped the House 3 title. But because it had already been used to sell the film to foreign markets, they kept it when it was released in these other countries. This posed a problem in Italy because there was already a La Casa 3 and the American House sequel, House 2, The Second Story, had been released as La Casa di Helen in Italy, which is strange because at least in the American audio, there is no character named Helen seen or even mentioned in that film. So anyway, La Casa di Helen, I guess they felt that that was close enough to La Casa 6 to go ahead and consider that its in-name-only sequel would be a rightful follow-up, and so the horror show was released as La Casa 7, making it the final film in the La Casa series. So there you go, and as brief as I can make it history of the La Casa series, trust me, there were a lot of other little rabbit holes and side notes I wanted to follow here, but I'm maintaining focus. So I just wanted to give you a little more context regarding some of the connective tissue between today's films. Like, they're in Italy, at least, they're part of the same series, technically, kind of, sort of. So if we're all good and set, then, let's talk to Keith Carey about Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, and House 2, The Second Story. Our guest today is Keith Carey, who has the show This Is Not a Show. Should I call it a show, then? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can call it whatever you want. What you can call it is a shittier version of my old podcast. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> Keith Carey, formerly of the podcast Mean Boys, yeah. currently of the podcast This Is Not a Show with Tom Goss, has two albums out, Forever Nap and Partylicious. I, I recommend both of them. Keith is very funny. Yeah, I recommend one of them, but I'm not going to tell yeah. you which one because <laughs> uh, buy both of them. And then you tell me which one's bad. It's, yeah, buy both. Message Keith or, write, or leave a review saying which one you think is the one he likes. And if you're wrong, then take the albums back. You have to <laughs> yeah, give them exactly. both back. <laughs> but you don't get the money back. No, you don't get the money. That's that's no. that's not how this works. You get nothing. This is a reverse <laughs> game show. 
Keith is a very funny comic. I still consider you a friend. Yeah, we're. I will say you're one of those dudes where it's like I haven't seen you or talked to you in a very long time. Yeah. But when you hit me up to do this, I was just like, yeah, of course I would. Andy's the homie. And I'm like, you haven't seen this dude in like half a decade, it feels like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it feels like a while. I'm happy to have you on the show. And I've been wanting to, to get we've been trying to get you on here for a while. But sometimes it takes me a very long time to come up with the companion for a film. Right. And you actually, when I asked you to pick a film, you gave me yours. And then someone else picked that one. And I said, well, you can't do that one. Keith Carey's got it. It was Eric Barnes. And okay. I made him do Evil Dead. I feel bad. I have to get Eric back on because I kind of forced him into a position where I was like, okay, well, you can't talk about that one, but here's this one you're going to do. Right. And it's like, he didn't pick that. So now I'm a dick because I had a good pairing for that one. I gave him the old, uh, it was the Minneapolis screw job. Right. My point is, it's been a while and since you picked a film, and it took me a while to come up with it. And then I, we'll talk about what I came up with. We we sure will. We I have, sure I have will. so many thoughts about what you, <laughs> what you've done to me. <laughs> so Keith Carey, the film that you picked is 1987's Evil Dead Two. Evil Dead Two, Dead by Dawn, directed by Sam Raimi, released in the spring of 1987. It's a quasi sequel to 1981's Evil Dead and is basically that film just with every element cranked way up. Yeah. And it is a horror comedy and it gets screwball, it gets cartoon, and it concerns Ash Williams who makes the mistake of going to a random cabin with his girlfriend to spend the weekend and hits play on a reel-to-reel tape recorder which uh, stirs up the Kandarian demon evil force that is in the woods. And then it possesses his girlfriend. He has to kill her. He loses his mind. The professor's daughter and colleague show up and a bloodbath ensues. And it's a good time. And I don't know why I even felt the need to give a brief synopsis of this film. I feel like if you're listening to this show, you have seen this movie. Right. But Keith Carey, what does Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn mean to you? Why is this the film you chose? Yeah, so it's it's funny that you mentioned the Eric getting hosed into Evil Dead 1 thing, because like all the Evil Dead movies were a huge part of my childhood, because my mom, my mom had like good taste in movies, and I feel like Evil Dead 2 was the first thing she got to show me as a kid that was like a weird thing she liked. <laughs> And it's I didn't realize that until later on, like I got older, like, oh, that's got to be such a cool moment as a parent to be like, oh, I can make my kid like Star Wars or whatever. But I get them to like the weird kind of like yeah. crazy bullshit that I didn't know if they'd like or not. So, like, I mean, this was probably the movie I watched the most as a kid. This and Army of Darkness, because Evil Dead One is good, but Evil Dead One is like, you know, it's very horror forward and it's got the comedy elements, but you kind of have to squint for them. And this to me is the the best horror comedy ever made. It is the best distillation of like somebody taking a very simple box, which is okay. It's a haunted house movie basically and pumping every weird, insane idea of what you could do with that into this like super tight, efficient package. Like I've watched this movie probably like once a year for the past like decade. And I feel like in the time between viewings, I sort of think about it. Like when people ask me what my favorite horror movie is and I'm like, 
Ah, Evil Dead 2 is probably in there. It's like top five, maybe The Shining or like Halloween or something maybe Mm -hmm. bumps it. And then I watch it and I remember the first 30 minutes of Evil Dead 2 is the best piece of art ever created. (laughs) It's like it's sincerely like the best punk album ever recorded, the best horror movie ever made, the best comedy special ever released. It is brutally efficient. And like every shot in this movie is the best shot in a movie. Yeah, I have a similar kind of relationship to it in that. Listeners of the show know my mom is a horror fan. I think you know that. I think this is, again, yeah. why I've asked you this, because we talk about horror movies. Right. But my mom was also a huge horror fan, and this is another one that she... This was one of the ones that, like, she waited until she thought I was old enough to right. see. Like, she rented it. She was excited about it coming out on video. I think she missed it in the theater for some reason. Okay. But when it came out on video, she was like... She had it a hold on it at the video store. Like, they were they called her when it came in. <laughs> Right. And then she waited a few years and then showed it to me. And it was like, oh, holy shit. Yeah. But there are definitely there's a there was a long stretch of my life where if you had asked me what my favorite movie is, I would have said Evil Dead 2 because I just it's that thing you do right between age like, I don't know, nine and like 26. I think mid to late 20s is when you kind of come out of this. Right. Where you find a movie you love and you just watch the shit out of it over and over and over again. You make all your friends watch it. Right. You can't stop getting it. You can't get enough of it. And Evil Dead 2 is one of those for me. Yeah, if you're a white dude who likes shit <laughs> as a personality, like that becomes your version of spreading the gospel. Yeah. Is just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a reason this movie is mentioned by name in High Fidelity. Right, Because it, it is, this is the horror movie for that guy. Right, and I feel like there's like five different movies that have their own sect. It's like, are you a Tarantinoologist or are you an Evil Dead guy? Like there's... Yeah. yeah, you will yeah. definitely have like five guys who look like me and Andy throughout your life trying to <laughs> pump a movie into your fucking veins. God help you if you're a woman, because it's going to be so uh, much worse for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're just you've, you've given up already, probably. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> it's actually been a while since I've seen it because I watched it so much for for such a long time that right. it's like I think every three years or so I, I watch it again because it's like I got to I got to watch it. And every time it's like, oh, yeah. This is the best. Right. There's nothing that touches this. <laughs> you, it's, you forget how you almost, you kind of start taking it for granted at a certain point. Exactly. You take it for granted because you think of it as like, it's clever. It's fun. It's got a good sense of humor. But I'm sure the shine's worn off a little bit by now. And you watch it and you're like, no. If right. anything, it transcends every stage of like cultural me, you know, like it. Yeah. It reaches through time. Right. It is. Yeah, it is. It's rare that you find something you like as much when you were like 15 as you do when you're 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is one of those. It's like there, there are albums like that have been like, for whatever reason, you know, this is an intensely personal album to me. And then I'll listen to it again now at 42. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I get why I love this when I was 17. And there's still some great songs on it. But overall, I'm like, mm, not so much. Yeah. But Evil Dead 2 is not, it's like, it's total filmmaking. Right. Like every component, every cinematic component you can even think of. Right. That would go into making a movie is on display here. And not just on display, but like perfected. <laughs> like, right. It's it When you really think of it in the sort of like the timeline of where Sam Raimi was as a director, like it's kind of shocking how far he's swinging outside of his weight class, Mm -hmm. just in terms of like the kind of precision of how everything's put together in this movie. Yeah. It's a very silly, like obviously like gore movie. And there's a lot of, you know, intentionally goofy looking shit in it. 
But in terms of like just the way he edits it, the way he sort of like chooses every shot super carefully, the way he makes that cabin feel mm-hmm. this big, like tiny when he needs to and massive when he needs to. It's uh, it's really impressive. Yeah. Evil Dead 2 kind of in a lot of ways, it it both reinforces and shatters a few sometimes toxic misconceptions or assumptions about the world of filmmaking. I'm, I'm not a fan of auteur theory. Like I, I can't stand the idea that like one filmmaker, the director is like King and like is the only influential voice in a film. Obviously, like I believe in the collaborative process. Right. And I always think that my favorite films from my favorite filmmakers usually reinforce my side of that. Usually kind of like alien Halloween, the films, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they're, they're films that like you look at everyone else, every department head in those films. And it's right. like, oh, this was a team. This was a team of very gifted people. And sure, they worked under this one person's vision, but like they were all contributing. And for some reason, especially when you stack it up against the film that we're going to talk about later, Evil Dead 2 is like it, it conveys that message, especially in contrast to like, I don't know if you know much about the first Evil Dead movies, the making of it. I'm sure you do, Keith. But for the listeners, if you're curious, listen to the episode with Eric Barnes where we talk about Evil Dead and Equinox. But that was a nightmare set. Like, no one was happy making that movie. Right. It was awful. It was like almost Texas Chainsaw Massacre level bad. A bunch of kids who basically went out into the woods to just torture their friends. Yeah. (laughs) It's like yeah. the most wholesome version of essentially that. Yeah. And then this one, it was, it's not that it's like everybody is kind of, from what I know of the filmmaking process, the shoot, the production process, everyone was fine. Everyone had a great time. Like right. there was no bad blood. I think this movie does kind of like go to your theory because none of this works. If Bruce Campbell is not as good as he is. Not one frame of these movies works. They don't have the staying power. I don't think eh, I don't think we're talking about Evil Dead the way we are 30 years later. If Bruce Campbell is not exactly the right guy, exactly willing to not just in terms of like the physical abuse, but to trust direction as weird as like, okay, you're being attacked by demons, but play it like you're in a Buster Keaton movie. Like, I think most actors would be embarrassed to commit to that and would be like, oh, no, I want to like look cool and make it look scary. And he trusts Sam Raimi enough to be like, no, you know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. I'm capable of pulling this off. And it sells the whole thing. Oh, and he, I mean, he really goes for it. Like it's, it's, people talk about genre acting like it's somehow less than regular, like straight dramatic acting. And I hate that. A hard same. I will say it until I die. It is much more meaningful and difficult to pull off a high caliber performance in a genre film. Like there's so much more going on there. Cause you have to transcend the audience already wanting to not like you like wanting, like not even not like you, but like when you show somebody a cheesy horror movie or whatever, they want to dunk on the acting. So when you can be good through that or sell the version of that, you want and be in on the joke. That is a, a skill set that I think is I, I believe in something called what I call the greatest cheeseburger in the world approach to art. I'll explain what I mean. Like, I feel like a lot of people want to do the kind of like highfalutin sort of reinvent everything version of whatever art it is, whether it's horror or comedy or music or whatever. 
to the point that I think people who do things like high caliber genre performance or really good like punk rock or like dumb comedy that is executed well get kind of pushed into this bin. But I think that making the world's greatest cheeseburger is as big of a skill as making a 10 course French dinner. They're just different art forms. Absolutely. Like I'm always going to want the world's greatest cheeseburger over the anything else. Look, there's, there's room for both of them. I just think that like everything that I'm drawn to artistically, I feel like that like really ends up resonating with me ends up being more often than not world's greatest cheeseburger. shit. It's evil dead Two. It's the Ramones. It's, fucking roast comedy and jackass you know what i mean it's yeah evil dead 2 really is the world's greatest cheeseburger no you're 100 percent right because it's you could send a, a thousand people with a camera and the exact same budget out and be like go make the best haunted house movie you can none of them are making a better one yeah well also if you put it in those terms right it's like this movie is so good at breaking the expectations that you would have from if you were to sell tell somebody oh this is evil dead 2 and it's the greatest haunted house movie. Right. The, the expectations you would have going into that are not the movie you get. No, not at all. Just overall, this film is so great at handling movement and misdirection and escalation and right. expectation. Like it's constantly playing with these and subverting them. And it's because all of these skilled people behind this, like you've got Sam Raimi working from a script by him and Scott Spiegel. And you've got... Bruce Campbell. I mean, let's just talk about Bruce Campbell even more for a minute. The guy is okay. First of all, I forget how fucking hot he is. Oh my god, it's, it's bananas. I've been I've been playing that Evil Dead video game that came out. So there's been a lot of Evil Dead talk around the house with me and my girlfriend. And basically, it always devolves into us just like kind of like staring slack jawed at young Bruce and be like, Jesus yeah. Christ, yeah, just drooling, yeah, just like come on. How are you that handsome and this gifted at comedy? And, you know, like it's just it's one of those things where it's unfair, right? Like, oh, it makes you furious. Yeah. Like, how dare you be this hot and this good? And yeah, his timing is incredible. Right. His commitment, his dedication. And yeah, we talk about this movie being sort of just like a world's greatest cheeseburger or like, yeah, it's just a fun fantasy romp. It's a comedy. It's a cartoon with blood and lots of, you know, whatever. But. He's got a gravity in his performance that yeah. is like truly moving and compelling and relatable. And it and it because of that, you look at a lot of this stuff and it's like, oh, I'm I'm learning truths right now. <laughs> I mean, that's really like it's talking about how handsome he is kind of like the biggest thing you could say for how good he is, is that like by the middle of any Evil Dead property, you watch it, and you go, oh, Ash is a fucking loser. Like he's a loser and he looks like he's getting his ass kicked the whole time and he looks like a fool. And for somebody that attractive and like you're like, oh, that guy must have everything under control to be able to sell. I am in so far over my head. Yeah. Like at every turn is again underappreciated how good of an actor he is. It's also most almost like he's a because this film does rewrite him a little bit from the first because in the first movie, he's the really timid, shy kind of beta you know, right. like his his friend Scott is the like assertive alpha and turns out to be a complete dickhead. So the sensitive right. Ash turns out to be our hero. And in this film, it's almost like, well, we can't you know, they couldn't get the rights to use the footage from the first movie. So they basically had to do that like first, you know, 20 minutes or so remake of the first movie in order to get which is also just like the way that thing moves. And yeah. it just never it's just like every shot is a painting. Yeah. But his character is a little bit more like an amalgam of 
his character and Scott from the first movie. It's yeah. like he's sort of like cheesy and a little bit more of assertive, but he's also like that's why you have to fuck him up even more. Yeah. Like <laughs> he's exactly like charming enough that you want him to live, but annoying enough that you want him to get really fucked up. Yeah, it, he loses his hand and you're like, "Okay, that's fair." Yeah, now we're even. Like <laughs> now we're even from having to watch you hit on that girl at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i yeah. also i know this is a remake but i like it i mean it is a, it's a uh, remake of the first movie but yeah. i do love in my head canon it's a sequel <laughs> where he like he went back to town and was like well a bunch of weird shit happened last time i was at that cabin <laughs> but there's no way it's gonna happen to me twice so now i'm gonna take this other girl out there who's also named linda <laughs> yeah there is this kind of like because they didn't straight up remake the first movie then they, they changed it and, right. and because they didn't really explain it in any way. It's just like you almost think like, OK, so at the end of the first movie, when the evil force hit him, did it just erase his memory? And now he's just coming back like, oh, I've never been here before. Like he could be stuck in a loop of doing it forever yeah. <laughs> would be actually kind of a, if he didn't end it where it ends. Obviously, that'd be a funny uh, bit to close out on. Yeah, I, I think there's there's something to that whole idea of like he has to, you know, you got you got to ugly him. Well, that's the thing, right, too, that Sam Raimi says that I think. One of the Cohen brothers repeated when they showed Blood Simple at Cannes when he was like, oh, Sam Raimi's three rules of horror movies is the innocent must suffer, the guilty must be punished, and a man is only a man through tasting blood or something like that. And it's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's the most metal shit I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, that's about right here. That's what you got to do to this guy. Also, in a way, he's sort of like that John McClane action hero prototype of like, He's not flawless. He's not right. he's not invincible. And which is also kind of what Jackie Chan brought to martial arts movies when he started having more control over the movies he was in was he was like, "Well, I'm not going to be the tough guy Bruce Lee like wiping his own blood off and tasting it and spitting it back and being tough. I'm going to be the guy that does the Buster Keaton stuff and gets hit and falls over and and, right. and gets wounded and Yeah. It's a guy just constantly holding on for dear life in every situation, which yeah. is so much more compelling than somebody who is a total wiener victim the whole time or is way too hardcore and you never believe they're in trouble. Yeah. And in that way, he's very much like a final girl in a, in a slasher movie. Right. You know, where it's like, he goes from being this less assertive person to, to having through, through torture and suffering, having to turn the weapon against the oppressor, et cetera. Yeah. There's but, it's, it, it would be very hard for most movies to earn the moment where he turns his hand into a chainsaw and then <laughs> says groovy down the barrel of a camera. Like <laughs> that's to pull that off and not have somebody throw every copy of your movie into a fucking bonfire is pretty remarkable. It's very difficult to earn that. Right. And he earns it. That film earns it. And it's in large part, thanks to Bruce Campbell's performance. And again, is a thing that I noticed this time especially is just how good he is at talking to himself. That's difficult. That oh, is yeah. as the next film will show us. It is <laughs> difficult to, as a, as that kind of a character convincingly talk to yourself. Like that's why they gave Batman Robin. Right. I mean, this is, if anything, here's how good he is at like playing opposite himself is that where the movie loses steam for me is when anybody else shows up <laughs> like about like 40 minutes into the movie, the rest of the crew comes in and it's still good. Yeah. And it, it peaks at the end, but like, it gets less good because now you're watching him interact with people who are a little shittier at being in this movie than he yeah. is. I mean, I, I do want to talk about them because, yeah, for the first chunk of this movie, aside from the asides where we're tracking these other characters, it really is just a one-man show. 
It's a, you could do this on in a black box theater. Hell, I mean, you could do the whole movie in a black box theater. I mean, it uh, is a they did the yeah, they, they did the musical, musical yeah. Uh, which I never saw. I saw the Reanimator musical twice, which was amazing. I haven't seen it yet. The Evil. De- I haven't seen it either, but I want to see that Evil Dead music. Yeah, I, I would love to see it. But, it, but yeah, exactly. It's just this showcase, this one man show, and it's so compelling and interesting to watch. And you know, he's he's interacting with all of this other stuff, which is what drives it forward. But then when the other actors show up, and I think that the uh, the rest of the cast, Bruce Campbell is so good that you forget about the rest of the cast but on this watch i was like no they're all great they're good they're they're good i think i think i i just i like bruce so much that i am inclined to sleep on him but i watching again what's the the hillbilly guy jake danny hicks he's so good he is incredible in this movie the choices he's making the things he's doing with it it's like he's just great i really thought sarah barry was great too as annie she actually has a big chunk that's just her in the film when ash gets possessed and is again like how he plays like nine different versions of himself (laughs) and they all have a distinct thing going on (laughs) and they're all so different from everything else yeah it's all distinct it's all specific he's got so many tools in his kit that it's hard to pay attention to other people but i really think sarah barry she really is the one like lone kind of like level-headed character who also has a personality in this film right like she is the straight man in this movie with all of these other cards all of these other fall guys like even bobby joe and i mean domeyer richard domeyer as ed is he's kind of just like a handsome blonde beefcake yeah and then he's evil and that's that's his whole he's, thing he's we need another guy to like cut up with an axe that's the only reason yeah. he's, he's the only <laughs> exactly. person there who just straight up feels like cannon fodder and everybody else yeah. you're like oh they might have something to do yeah well it's also like again though that this movie is so efficient with how it does that because it's like well we need another guy to cut up but we also need a new big monster right hey <laughs> <laughs> we we got this guy who can just be both. We have beefcake at home. <laughs> well, what's kind of brilliant too is that he looks exactly like the guy who would be like the the like you know the jock boyfriend mm-hmm. in any other version of this movie. So the way it's structured, you're basically watching the end of a different horror movie run into the beginning of a different yes. horror movie. <laughs> yes. So we're having to watch the last guy see the guy who's gonna and you're like, oh, you poor asshole! Like you do not have it. <laughs> Yeah, like their movie was going to take them to a different place, but they accidentally ended up in this movie, and it's like, right. well, all bets are off here. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, that guy couldn't handle it. You definitely can't handle it. <laughs> yeah, but I do think that, you know, all these other characters, they're kind of like, they've all got this, they feel part of the comedy of the world, whereas Sarah Barry does not, as as Annie. Right. And I, I don't know, I think she's doing great work. I think all the actors in this are doing great work, and we have to recognize Ted Raimi for a minute oh, yeah. as Henrietta because holy shit <laughs> maybe the mo- one of the most repellent like <laughs> creatures ever put on film wow everything about her is off-putting yeah like since I was a kid I've had a hard time looking at fat old ladies because having watched Evil Dead 2 this many times I'm like oh now I know what you look like naked like you yeah, know, well, she's just flying around with no pants on the whole time uh, honestly Henrietta to me feels like you know, Spiegel or Ramey or somebody when they were in the process of writing the script was like, hey, what if we took the lady out of the bathtub in The Shining <laughs> and we made her fly around and do monster shit? 
Right. And that's what that's what we get. I, I guess the reason they made her an overweight character. Yeah, I'm fat. Like yeah, for the listening like, audience, like where I'm not being mean. I'm, I'm sorry to body shame the zombie witch. <laughs> I always <laughs> feel like overweight is the like shitty way to say it. Yeah, I'm fat because is it's fine. like there's overweight a standard. Im- yeah. yeah, overweight implies you're failing. Like fat yeah. is just a state of being. Honestly, overweight almost implies you don't exist. Right. Cut from the team. You're cut from humanity. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the reason they made henrietta a fat character was because Raimi knew he wanted ted Raimi to play the character because he knew like uh, i'm not going to convince anyone else to do all this shit and wear all this makeup and, right. and this prosthetic suit it has to be my brother he's the only one i can get to do this so he's got to fit in the suit because originally i guess henrietta was emaciated so they were just like no just pile it on and make her make her bigger right and at some points it took him eight hours in the makeup chair have you ever done like an extended like uh, prosthetic thing where they had to like put a bunch of makeup on you for shit? No, I've done like some effects makeup. You know, I, I think I was in a makeup chair for like half an hour once. I did one but... for this streaming thing one time where it was like they put me on. It was like a two hour job because they turned me into like a troll. Basically, it was oh, like nice. the idea was like I was like an Internet troll and they were capturing. me. I forget what the, the thing was, but it was so hard when I had that much shit on me to then also like function and like focus and perform. So the amount of stuff they have glued to him where he is still able to go as hard as he does is uh, so impressive. Yeah, exactly. He's able to act through that suit and right. that, that makeup, which is difficult. Yeah. I think and- a lot of people get lost in the, mm-hmm. in the physical of like what the look is and he's putting something behind it that is yeah. like, Oh, there is a very specific performance that makes this a little more memorable than just big spooky monster in the basement exactly and he's like created the personality foundation for it and then can just go bigger from there and it's yeah it's again it's just like people i feel like a lot of people take the the man in suit performances or the the monster suit performances in horror movies for granted sometimes too and it's like no that stuff requires some some fortitude yeah like you know when you're watching a bad version of it you know what i mean like it's you can really blow it very easily oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. well and it's also like what's so fun about the monster like all the sort of deadites that pop up in in really all the movies but especially this one and uh, army of darkness is like most of the time in a movie like this the monster just seems like this unstoppable evil and it's just i'm evil that's my whole thing the monsters are funny in this where it's like they think it's funny that they're fucking with this guy. <laughs> yeah. You give a monster a sense of humor or a sense of like playfulness. Right. And I'm a big fan of it. Even when if it's like the monster knows it's, you know, when it when it convinces one thing that always bothered me was when he's got Linda's head and he puts it and she's that actress is doing great work, too. Oh, she's killing it. And he puts her head in the vice and she starts, you know, oh, Ash, don't hurt me, you know, and he starts just being anguished and immediately she starts laughing. It's like she, it's like the kid <laughs> who has no poker face about yeah. the prank he's pulling on you. Like he just immediately. If she would have stayed good, Linda, she could have maybe got him to yeah. like let her out and like, but she's like, nah, it's too funny. Nah, it's too funny. I couldn't, I couldn't keep a straight face. You fucking bought that? What's wrong with you, you fucking rube? <laughs> There's no logic to any of it other than just, hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville and this is some guy in a cabin. Like, that's yeah. the whole energy of all of it. Yeah. And I love that. I love that yeah. our monster is like a juvenile idiot. Like, the monster can't help itself. It has to, it, you know, it has to. 
do the monster shit. Yeah, and there's like no rules really, like at least not super clear rules to like how it works. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's it can go through a door sometimes. Sometimes yeah. the sun kills it. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's just kind of like I don't know. I'm just gonna wait, and then when it's funny, I'll show up again. Yeah, I mean, oh, in the beginning when he's running from it, and it's yeah. got that you've got that the evil force POV, the Kandarian POV that's like flying through the house, and he he just like hides in the cellar, and it looks around, and he's gone, and it's like oh. Okay, I give up. I'm bored. Yeah. You know, it's it's almost like it, if if it doesn't hit its target immediately, it's it's got to go away or something. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to go take a shit. I'll try again in 20. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're no fun. You don't want to play anymore? Right. Yeah, or, or that, yeah, maybe it's Roger Rabbit rules, you know, that it can only do it when it's funny. Speaking of all the makeup and effects stuff, that's another huge part of why this movie works is it's got stop motion animators special effects, makeup designers, visual effects, matte painters, like all of these masters of like practical effects crafts. And gosh, Mark Showstrom from Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and From Beyond. Okay. He was the the head guy and he had this studio in South Pasadena and he knew the guys that would become KNB effects group. Right. And he brought them together for this. And this is the birth of this like legendary effects team. And it's they speaking of jackass as well, they like I don't know if you've ever seen the video footage they recorded. I, I guess Nicotero so. had a camera the entire time that they were filming this movie. And it's just, just like them behind like, the scenes stuff. Yeah. Just filming behind the scenes stuff with the effects, like making like little comedy sketches with their effects. Work. Oh, that rules. Yeah. And it's like really dark humor. Some of it. Sure. And it's, it just seems, it just makes it seem like it was such a fun set to work on. But also these guys, it was a seven person team in total for, for on that end, on the production end of, of the practical effects work. And these guys worked for 12 weeks of prep before shooting like three months of prep work. Right. Which is such a crazy amount of investment, especially because like you kind of look at it now and you're like, there is this sort of within, there's a reverence for sort of like really well executed practical effects and like makeup and gore and stuff. But it feels like that was sort of like this era is kind of the birth of like, what if we took it really seriously and tried to do the best possible job of it rather than just kind of like that? I don't know. We'll cut its head off and it'll look how it looks. You know what I mean? Yeah, they took it so seriously and they put all this work in so that it would go right when they're shooting. And that's also maybe how they get to goof around on set so much when they're, yeah, they're actually prepared. shooting. They're ready to go. They already did the work. You know, hey, measure twice, cut somebody's hand off once. Right. Well, I got to imagine if you're Raimi, too, it's like, OK, the first time we did this, we had like, what, $10,000 or whatever. And we had to figure out how to do all this shit on the fly. Now it's like, not only do I have a whole team of people making this stuff, I also already made this movie. Mm-hmm. So it's like I, I have so much more room to fuck around and explore and be uh, yeah. creative because I'm not just like having to figure everything out 10 minutes before I do it. Yeah. And he's got the money and somehow the clout. It's interesting. Evil Dead was such a huge success that, it, you know, he, he did Crime Wave after that, which flopped. Right. And this is, I guess, one of those things where it's like, well, Evil Dead was good enough that we don't really care that Crime Wave flopped. So... He's got the resources, but I guess the biggest thing that he got on his side to be able to do all the things he needed to do was Dino De Laurentiis coming on as producer and which is, I guess, thanks to Stephen King. (laughs) Right. So, you know, the the guy who helped the first movie get big now then it's like, hey, you should produce Sam Raimi's Evil Dead sequel. Right. And it's like because of that, 
crime wave didn't matter. And because Dino De Laurentiis is this kind of like fiercely independent producer when it comes to giving artists what they want and what they need, Sam Raimi got what he wanted, what he needed. It was like twice the budget, I think, of the first movie. Okay. And, you know, now Connections so that he can hire people like, you know, Peter Deming, who is the DP, who would go on to shoot a bunch of David Lynch stuff, had already shot, I think, a David Lynch movie. Right. And then work with Raimi on several other projects. And Kay Davis, the editor. Holy shit, the editing in this film. Yeah, it's, it's so good. It it's so propulsive. You never get to breathe in this movie. Yeah. It never drags when it's taking its time to stretch a moment out. It's doing so very deliberately. Right. And then it's going to give you three punchlines after that setup. Right. Just like in quick succession. It's the editing and, and, and the way it's shot. Just every again. It's part of the brilliance of I think the movie is like I feel like a lot of like especially like horror when you think of like the very broad like oh spooky house you know monster in the woods genre you think of it as this very like wind up wind up and then release kind of thing like even the mm -hmm. first evil that does that a little more there's a lot more like sort of like lead time into it this one is like five minutes in it just starts at 80 miles an hour yeah 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 and then it slams on the brakes a couple times and then turns left exactly but yeah it's like that ability and confidence to maintain that level of momentum for that long and sort yeah. of like subvert exactly how you think this kind of horror movie works is so much in the editing as well as the actual production yeah and just so much in that sense of discovery and sense of play and right. sense of like it's weird because again the, the you know the juxtaposition here is that it's it's curious and it's trying to find things out and it's reaching and taking wide swings but it's also very planned and very deliberate feeling right it's kind of that perfect center of both impulses yeah in filmmaking also just i don't know i relate to ash like middle school me would watch this movie high school me especially would right. watch this movie and it's just like i don't need a horror movie to tell me what the metaphor is Right. It just has to be there. In this movie, it's like, okay, let's see. What do I got in common with Ash? Well, there's some self-harm going on here. <laughs> <laughs> Ash, the ultimate cutter. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's some self-harm going on here. Can't trust anyone because they might turn out to be a monster. Right. He's already had a couple people turn out to be monsters, and that hurt him. So now he's everybody's at arm's right. length. He's got very big feelings that he doesn't know how to control. Sometimes he becomes a monster. <laughs> His two feelings are, oh, God, and screaming at the sky. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the level of emotional control he has in this. Yeah, exactly. Looking in the mirror is a struggle for him. <laughs> I can relate to that. Also, at one point, a redneck bully holds a bunch of pages from a book and says, this is horse shit and throws them away. And boy, can I tell you, I relate to that. <laughs> My poetry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give it back. Give it back. I need it. It's important. I was raised by like fucking meth people. So the most relatable thing to me about Ash is treating a medical wound with duct tape. <laughs> like that is <laughs> absolutely a thing that I have done. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to... I mean, I feel like we've covered it pretty well. Yeah. What's great about it is it's kind of a perfect movie, but it's also like there's only so far down you can go to like trying to like intellectually break it down where it's like it's an experience. It's a roller coaster. It's so the opposite of like a lot of like I like, you know, a lot of like cerebral horror and kind of like headier sort of like mm -hmm. metaphor. -ish. I like Midsommar is what I'm getting at. 
This is the opposite of that. This is just like, what's it about? It's about shut up. Fuck you. Everything is scary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. But that's what I love about it. It's like, yeah, okay. This is a movie where, sure, we have tree puppets. Right. And at one point, a POV shot from a possessed hand. Right. It also like has these weird little emotional beats, like the real Henrietta under the cellar going, I remember you were born because it was snowing and it was strange that it was snowing in September. And it's like, she's like crying. And it's like, that's getting me. It's getting me. So it lets them be people just enough where you're like, wait, this is happening to humans. Yeah. Like you you sort of feel bad for everybody for a second. And then you're like, nah, eat them alive. Fuck it. Yeah. (laughs) Which is exactly how it earns the chainsaw moment. A hundred percent. It's exactly how it earns him saying groovy. while after putting a shotgun and a holster on his back, like, right. That it's how it earns that because the next movie has a lot of stuff that it thinks it earns, but doesn't. And I will ask you, what was, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Your mom showed it to you. Uh, I mean, it's hard to place the first time because it was yeah. just like it was one of those ones that was just always around the house like we rented like this and army of darkness probably like conservatively 50 times over the course of my childhood before i finally just bought it yeah it's funny i can probably tell you the first time i saw army of darkness okay i don't know if i can actually tell you the first time i saw evil dead 2 i feel like a lot of the movies like that i love the most on like a level that i love this movie like it is hard for me to track that initial moment because they feel so baked into your dna at a yeah certain they're point family like, there was never a point where i didn't know evil dead 2 or halloween or what ha- you know what i mean it's just it's it's always been there exactly it's like the, it's like the sky <laughs> right <laughs> it's it's like the dark forces in the you know the dark bowers of man's domain it's yeah, yeah it's just it. always been there yeah, yeah. totally so the the movie I wanted to pair this with is it's sort of like I wanted to make this a double feature of horror comedy sequels that have a complicated relationship with their source film that both were released in 1987. And that's when we get House to the second story. So take it away. Keith Carey, how would you introduce our listeners to House to the second story? Okay, so I will I will start with this. I had never seen House One. <laughs> Perfect. I had heard of House, but I had never seen it. I knew there were like a couple of them, and I chose not to watch the first one and not to Google this movie because I was like, I want to go in completely blind. So if you have if you don't know House Two, literally stop listening to this. Go watch <laughs> it and come back because you owe it to yourself to experience it how I did. I agree. So giving you a break to do that. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed House yeah. 2. <laughs> Here's what I'll say. Like, I am kind of a basic bitch with my horror sort of knowledge. And like, I've seen a lot of horror movies, but I'm not like super deeply. I certainly don't know horror to the level that you do. So when you recommended this movie that I knew nothing about, I was like, all right, well, we're going to talk about Evil Dead 2, which is like kind of a, a cornerstone movie that everybody knows. And then we'll probably be watching some cool, interesting, like artsy <laughs> horror movie that Andy would recommend because surely he would pair something really great with Evil Dead 2. And OK, <laughs> I, don't, I don't like fuck you for making me watch this. <laughs> So House 2... Can you describe it is the first question. House 2 is a film about a house. It's about a haunted house. And uh, 
Guy shows up with his girlfriend. His girlfriend is trying to be, and I'm quoting the film here, the Madonna of the 80s, a pop star. Uh, and he is trying to, I think the idea is that they went back to the house because he's trying to find a crystal skull that belonged <laughs> to his family. And him and his friend end up digging up his ghost grandfather, <laughs> who is an old timey, uh, <laughs> old West bank robber. Please interject if I'm getting anything I was just going to say, he begins as an Aztec mummy. Oh, yeah. How could I forget? (laughs) He begins as an Aztec mummy with a gun. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And then there's no way to explain this movie that sounds like I'm not making it up. Yeah. And then they unwrap him and he's just a kooky old man they call Gramps. And they basically hide him in the basement while they try to... I, th- I think they're trying to find the skull that's going to make him young because he's alive, but he's still like a creepy old mummy. But he's like, hey, I wish I wasn't fucking old and shitty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, I'm underselling the performance of Gramps. Oh, here. yeah. Yeah. Then there's a Halloween party and Bill Maher shows up. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> And then at some point, they basically go through this this house, this haunted house, and it, it is revealed that it has, like, portals to different, like, alternate dimensions. So at one point, they're in, like, dinosaur times, and there's a whole extended interlude with a baby pterodactyl. Oh, yeah. And then at one point, they are in some sort of Aztec mummy sacrifice chamber where they rescue a virgin sacrifice aided by Cliff Clavin from Cheers who is the one part of this movie that works 300%. He's so good in it. (laughs) He's so fucking good. (laughs) And then at the end, Gramps dies again because he is killed by his nemesis, a different mummified Old West (laughs) gunslinger. (laughs) And then I actually misremember exactly how it ends. Do they get trapped in the cowboy dimension or is the implication that they're going to be cowboys in now times? So they are they are trapped in the cowboy dimension. And I want to say I am so glad that you called it the cowboy dimension, by the way, because my read on the doorways to other space times in this house is that they are alternate dimensions, not different points in our dimensions timeline. I mean, they say that in the movie. Homie says that the electrician, he's just like, oh, you got an alternate dimension. Under yeah, there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, you got an alternate universe here. And I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks for explaining the movie an hour and 15 yeah. minutes into the movie. Well, because the the barbarian, the first time we're faced with evidence of the alternate dimension is the barbarian that comes in to steal the skull. Right. But when that happens and they follow the barbarian back to his universe, the which, by the way, all this multiverse craze that's going on right now with Doctor Strange and everything everywhere all at once. All right. House two did it first. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, game recognized game. Okay. Yeah, look, so, okay. Sam Raimi. Sure. You made a Doctor Strange multiverse movie. Mm, stick mm-hmm. to evil dead. My friend, yeah. Ethan Wiley from house two is the filmmaker. I trust with oh, multiverse. You, you made a movie about a haunted house and a movie about a multiverse and they were different movies. Okay. Good try, <laughs> Sam. We did Ethan it all in Wiley one. did two in one. Yeah. He didn't waste any time. <laughs> all killer, no filler. That's what house. Anyway, they follow the barbarian back to that dimension. And yeah. there are creatures there that are certainly not of our earth. Like, 
this is like the we dog have the worm. giant the, the giant mole monster which eats the barbarian i right. assume and then yeah the the caterpupper who <laughs> is that what bring, it's <laughs> i don't know that's what i call it. it that's what it's called now they got the caterpupper they, they bring back to our dimension which i think is highly irresponsible right we don't know what that thing eats you know, this could be a yeah. cane toad situation all over again. Yeah. Or at, at least a gremlin situation. Yeah. You feed that thing the wrong kind of kibble and now there's 10,000 of it. Yeah. What are the rules about midnight with this thing? What are yeah. the water rules? We don't know. I mean, there's no rules in the fucking movie. So what well, well rules? exactly. <laughs> so uh, my my read on the end is that, yeah, they have. It's weird because they're trapped there. But in a way, they chose to be trapped there. Like he leaves and goes to this dimension that's in some universe that it who knows it might be the year 2022 there on that dimension but they just never got out of the old west i don't know okay that makes sense i just couldn't remember if it was they came back but they were wearing the cowboy gear no they're they're as far as i understand they're in cowboy times gotcha by the way if you didn't listen to me and go watch this movie before you listen to the rest of it (laughs) imagine trying to decipher what we just said For the last five minutes. <laughs> and we've left things out. Oh, we've left really a lot out. <laughs> great about this. So I found out because I had a, a stack of movies that I was thinking about pairing with Evil Dead 2. And this was one of them. And I'll tell you a couple of the others really quick. Prince of Darkness and A Chinese Ghost Story, with, which also both came out in 1987. Either way, we were going with something that came out in the same year as Evil right. Dead 2. I also considered just doing Equinox again and making somebody else watch Equinox because I will never not never want Equinox. people to watch. Oh, you look! You're you're over one on recommendations so okay. far. So <laughs> I actually, I'm I'm shitting on this movie, but like I'm glad I watched it just because I would have never in a billion years thought to watch this movie yeah. otherwise. No, I. So when I t- went on Twitter and I was like, I'm gonna make somebody fucking watch House Two for the podcast, <laughs> and I found out through tweeting that that there are a bunch of people that love this movie. I saw that tweet, and I when I saw that, I'm like, I bet this movie's really fucked up. Like that's what <laughs> I thought. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be some like weird like cannibal holocaust like fucking. So I was like prepped for that going yeah. in, and then as soon as I saw. The first of several mummies with guns in the film. I was like, I think I might have been incorrect. <laughs> yeah, you might have. You strapped in for uh, the teacup ride is what right. you did. <laughs> but this has like a, a weird, like a weirdly devoted cult following is what you're saying. Yeah, it, it has. I think it's similar to like Killer Clowns from Outer Space or Monster Squad or something where it's it's that like kids introductory horror you know it's that makes like, a ton of sense yeah and this film is definitely like intentionally i think geared towards a younger audience which is strange considering some of the choices yeah. regarding the human drama which is really weird but also like that's the kind of stuff i think that appealed to kids you know in the late 80s early 90s where you know you saw that thing that's like it feels a little darker than what you should be watching but it's also like speaking to you on your level in a lot of ways right and and doing the like young adult magic in the world kind of shit. Yeah, well, it is kind of like what a, you know, what a kid might have thought their grown-up problems were going to be like. Oh, my girlfriend might become a famous pop star. (laughs) But her manager's gross. Uh, Bill Maher might be my girlfriend's boss. Yeah, my friend who I drink beers with won't help me find a skull. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, exactly. It does uh, feel like a movie written by a 10-year-old, and I mean that in the best and worst ways. Like, it, yeah. It has that child brain logic to it, whereas it's progressing. It's like, none of this makes any sense and feels mm-hmm. so random, but everyone just in the movie accepts it in stride so easily that you're like, I guess, like, you kind of feel like you missed a reel of the movie, but you're like, <laughs> you, you sort of trust that the movie believes what it's doing. Yeah. So this movie is a sequel to house in name only really it's they were kind of oh yeah that was a... the first thing i googled was like what is the first house and everything i saw was just house two has nothing to do nothing. with house yeah. i don't even it's not the same house is it no what they the were fuck? trying <laughs> i mean they were both shot in la so they have that in common also both house one and house two feature cast members from cheers i saw that because george went in the first one george right? went is in the first one yep and there's, it's the same producer, Sean Cunningham, who also did Friday the 13th and Last House on the Left and tons okay. of other stuff. So it's kind of like the Cloverfield, 10 Cloverfield Lane thing where it's like, ah, we'll just have two yes. movies and just put the name on them so you go see it. But yeah. it's a different thing. They were trying to do the Halloween 3 thing where gotcha, gotcha. we're, we're going to do an anthology series. And look, they ended up kind of doing that, like the third house movie. They stopped calling it House 3 because by the time it was finished, they were like, okay, it is radically different from the other two House movies. It's not even really about a house anymore. So, okay. I mean, it's really more like Shocker. If you haven't seen, it's it's called The Horror Show with okay. uh, Lance Henriksen and Brian James, both playing characters that are very unusual for those actors. Uh, Brian James is playing this kind of like Freddy Krueger knockoff, but it's like the movie is sort of structured like Shocker. Okay. And Lance Henriksen's playing this like grizzled cop that's hunting him. But it's like just like the toxic masculinity is ramped up for both of these characters and the, right. the writers weren't super clever about dialogue. So it's really just both these like old guys you're like, fuck you, eat my dick or whatever at each other. <laughs> All right, that rocks. <laughs> While there's like crazy horror dream set pieces and stuff going and, on. And this is the sequel to the movie we just watched? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dude, yeah. cocaine rules. Like <laughs> God for this cocaine in the 80s. <laughs> and then House Four is like a return to the first one, kind of. It brings back the character Roger from the first movie, and it's the only one that even tries to. But it was supposed to be an anthology, and of course, the fourth one—that was it. They were done after that. Right. But can I tell you this? Because I thought this was funny. I, I when I went in, I was like, I'm going to be very diligent and take notes throughout the movie. I stopped taking notes after I wrote this mummy just called Ronald Reagan a pussy, uh, which is a, a thing that happens about like 20 minutes into this movie. Yeah. Zombie cowboy grandpa, formerly Aztec mummy grandpa, does say Ronald Reagan is a pansy. Yeah. And he wouldn't last five minutes in the Old West. That moment did give me like a little bit like, OK, I'm on your side movie. Yeah. Like. I don't know if I like everything about you, but we both think Ronald Reagan sucks. So yeah, like, we, we agree yeah. on Reagan. That's me, the House thing. Two, and John Hinckley are going to go hang out later. <laughs> it's going to be fucking sick. I mean, it's a shockingly weird movie, and it veers so hard in tone where it seems like it's trying to tee you up for a horror movie for the first like five minutes, and then it's kind of an '80s fuck comedy, but yeah. with the mummy for like the middle act. And then when you get into all this weird swashbuckling and like you can never quite grab which part of the movie you're in. It feels like it was written by 40 different people. Yeah. 
and it was shockingly only written by I think two or three different people. So <laughs> I, I, I will say it does seem to at certain points realize how funny it is, like what they're doing, like just the. There's that moment right before the the ghost cowboy, like the bad one shows up where they're mm-hmm. sitting down to dinner in the house and the man's wife has left with Bill Maher uh, to go get fucked for a record contract or whatever's going on in that yeah. subplot. And he's sitting there with the caterpillar, the baby pterodactyl, Gramps and his drunk friend in sweatpants. And he's just like, well, you guys are basically my family. <laughs> and I'm like, it's been three hours. Don't forget the... Aztec or Mexica virgin. I forgot about her. (laughs) Who they rescued who does not speak. I read the IMDb trivia page on this movie and like there's not a lot on there but one of them was they interviewed that girl who played that and she was like a playboy model and she's a playboy playmate yeah and she was shocked when she got there and they didn't tell her to take her top off. Yeah. (laughs) Which is so funny it's like we're making a wholesome movie here ma'am just be a virgin sacrifice none of this titty action. Devin De Vasquez, who is also in Society, which okay. is, uh, if you haven't seen Society, holy shit, you got to see Society, Keith. Okay, you would you would love Society. I, I'm never going to trust you again. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're you're right. It's weird because this movie has a lot of these like '80s film trappings in it, like right. especially, and we'll talk about them in a moment. The character of Charlie, who is like, what is it about the '80s? And just ha- always having a best friend who sucks shit character. <laughs> like, every protagonist in an 80s comedy has a best friend who is the worst person alive. Right. And Charlie's no exception. He is just awful. But, so it has that, and it has, like, the swashbuckling stuff. And, like, interdimensional portals were actually kind of a, a thing going on in the mid to late 80s, too. Like, Monster Squad from the same year had one waxwork two has a bunch yeah i mean there is one in evil dead too there is one in evil dead too exactly that's true so, that is that's a weird trope i hadn't really put together but that is kind of there was an era of that shitty friends and portals to the beyond yeah and sort of like jumping in and out of different worlds to do like different kind of meta genre things like this movie has a swashbuckling section a horror section a caveman dinosaur section and right. a western at the end so it's just got every like everything that a boomer grew up watching on tv is in this movie right including ron reagan and john wayne (laughs) (laughs) so it's got all these 80s things in it but also then there's like no gore no none at all i didn't realize it was pg-13 until like halfway through yeah devin de vasquez doesn't take her top off. there's no no nudity no no toplessness and it doesn't like ever really pick Here's the thing. Ethan Wiley came to this film with a background, like a kind of well-rounded background in effects work and theater and writing and directing and film and some filmmaking stuff. But he was a first time director. And it's weird, the stuff that like works in this film and then the stuff that just does not work. And like you said, the character of his girlfriend, Kate, played by Lar Park Lincoln from Friday the 13th, part seven. And Amy Yasbeck from Wings is the, her name is Puce Glitz. 
<laughs> and she's she's trying to be a pop star. Puce Glitz. Puce Glitz. Her 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 musical act's name is Puce Glitz and the Avoiders. I think I missed Puce Glitz because I heard and the Avoiders, but yeah, I had to go back a few times because I I mean I've seen this movie several times, but it yeah. never registered for me that she had a professional yeah. name. I also just realized that earlier when I was talking about this, I mixed up the plot line. The main guy's girlfriend is like the record, like she's yeah, she's like the record talent scout or something. Talent scout, yeah. But the other lady who plays Puce Glitz, she's great. Yeah. Oh, she's she's really good. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's having so much fun. Yeah. And then so yeah, Bill Maher, who. <laughs> I just think it's uh, funny. I was listening to the commentary and they were saying that like the costumer and the wardrobe people and the makeup people were all like complaining about Bill Maher being a fucking piece of shit to them the whole time. You don't say. And, and they were like, well, I don't know. He was always nice to me. And it's like, I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder what the subtle difference is between the director and producer of this movie yeah. and the costumers and wardrobers and makeup artists. Can we also acknowledge that a ghost cowboy calling Ronald Reagan a pansy is probably better, more incisive political comedy than anything Bill Maher's done in the past 10 oh. years? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. New rule. Get the fuck out of this movie, Bill. <laughs> That's the other thing is when I knew I was going to make you watch this movie, I was like, uh, Bill Maher, though. Bill Maher, Bill Maher, Bill Maher. You know what? <laughs> fuck him. Fuck Keith. He's going to watch Bill Maher. <laughs> He's barely in it, and I was able to handle it. Yeah. Look, he's barely in it. John Ratzenberger and Royal Dano are both in it way longer than Bill Maher is, and they both make up for that, I think. Yeah. But when those characters leave, we never hear from them again. They never come back. There's never any resolution on them. Which I kind of, that's the one thing I loved. He's like, well, my yeah. old life's over. I'm a cowboy now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's well, how that movie ends. The original script, I guess, they had written a scene where Slim, the, the evil zombie cowboy by the way is named slim razor which <laughs> is not just a zombie cowboy name that was his name when he was a living human i think that was my cell phone in yeah. 2004 <laughs> <laughs> yeah i had a slim razor when i saw limp biscuit <laughs> but also another thing i love about this movie's politics slim razor says a cab not only does one zombie mummy cowboy say that ronald reagan's a pansy which okay whatever I mean, I'm half pansy. It's fine. Yeah, no, I'm in, in the same. But I'm like, I'm like, if you're looking for me to, to take issue with the problematic language in House Two, you've called the wrong guy. <laughs> That's far from the problem. Yeah, yeah. But the other Slim Razor shoots a cop. <laughs> yes, yes, he, he shoots does. the sheriff. So Slim Razor, a cab. Nothing has ever been more telling about like just everything about your political <laughs> beliefs and ideology that you're like, well, the word pansy is a little problematic. Anyway, a cop gets shot and it fucking rules. <laughs> if they could have shot more cops and said less homophobic slurs, I would have loved this movie a lot more. I want a ghost cowboy to shoot a cop and call him an F slur and then watch you try to untangle that in your mind. I think I would break. I yeah, think like, I, would, oh, I would not. I would pull so hard in both directions. I would come apart. Yeah, I think that's how you become a centrist. You're like, all right, I just I can't. I'm Joe Biden now. I can't with either of this. I'm fiscally liberal and socially conservative. Wait, did I say that right? Yeah. It probably means the same thing. <laughs> so, oh, wow, we got lost in another dimension here. Yeah, sorry, this has spiraled out a lot. <laughs> what kind of kind of how House Two does it? The movie really does have like this fever dream vibe to it, where it's like you do check out for thirty seconds and then you're in a different movie, and it's jarring. And it's weird because it is not 
Evil Dead 2 has like this vibe, like it is made in a rough and tumble way. It feels like the kind of movie it is. Yeah. But this is shot like fucking Weekend at Bernie's. Like it looks like a very slick, normal 80s comedy. So you kind of get lost in the aesthetic a little bit. And it is it, it, it feels like weird and trippy and it's hard to describe after the fact. Yeah. Which is interesting because this actually had a smaller budget than Evil Dead 2. But it was a fast tracked sequel. So it feels a little less cohesive, you know, and it made a lot more money in the theater than Evil Dead 2. But again, there's a movie that you chose to watch and then a movie that I made you watch. And that's the (laughs) difference between these two movies at this point. But yeah, it does have this kind of like you you check out for any amount of time. You're going to have to go back because you probably and here's the thing. None of it's important. You can miss a lot of details in this movie. Yeah. And still be just as lost as you would be if you paid attention the entire time. Right. Because it, again, yeah, it's that written by a 10 year old quality to it where it's, it's trying to shoehorn in as many different things as it can and not really sticking on any of them, except one of my favorite running themes in this movie is that LA is terrible and the people who work in the entertainment industry are awful And that's kind of like the through line with the characters of Kate, Puce Glitz, and whatever Bill Maher's name is. It's They represent this like, and it's weird because they, you don't know if you're supposed to like Jesse. Right. (laughs) Like. He kind of sucks. Yeah. He's a little bit of a blank slate. And look, Ari Gross is not nearly as good at Bruce Campbell at talking to himself. No. Well, Ari Gross is the guy's name who yeah. plays Jesse. Yeah, he's just doing it where he's narrating him looking at a photo album to such an extent where it's like nobody would ever speak to themselves this way. But it's almost like he knows his friend is in the room and he's doing it to get his attention. Like, it's one of those, like, aren't you going to ask me what I'm doing? Right. Kind of things, which also fuels this weird, like, okay, they're not queer coded characters in any way. No. But when they're eating Thanksgiving dinner, it's almost like, you know, queer chosen family Thanksgiving dinner because it's just a bunch of literal outcasts from different dimensions, from different worlds together. So it has that like chosen family misfit vibe to it. That's, if, if that's the case, I'm converting to straight. Like if this, is, if this is a metaphor for whatever it is we've chosen to do with our lives. I don't actually believe that it's it's just part of that whole Thanksgiving deal to me is that when those characters left the movie originally in the script, all those characters are going to get killed by Slim Razor, the other the evil zombie cowboy. All the ones at the dinner? No, the the girlfriend, like, the two oh, girlfriends gotcha, gotcha. and Bill Maher. <laughs> Bill Maher and the two girlfriends, the thruple. <laughs> they <laughs> those characters, they were supposed to be killed off by Slim Razor and like they were going to have already left and he was going to like just chase them down. From what I understand. Yeah, it was they, they were going to leave and then he was going to chase them down and kill them. But they never shot it. They just ran out of time and didn't shoot it. This is what I would have done. OK, so they're trying to get the record deal for, you know, pube glitz or whatever. They go to the Capitol <laughs> Records building. They get to the office of John Q music business. And then yeah. he turns around in his chair and it's been Slim Razor the whole time. <laughs> You're going on the road with the B-52s. <laughs> I want you to join Rascal Flats. They don't exist yet. Life is a die way. 
Also, I will say the Bill Maher taking the women away is the most unrealistic thing in this movie because he's with two women and he didn't pay either of them to be there. So <laughs> I also love that he's the one calling somebody out for being a creep. Yeah, it's like that's... and it's like mm, this isn't real. Like even if you don't know who Bill Maher is, it's like look at this guy. Yeah, you are a lizard, just a greasy lizard. You look like Dennis Hopper in the Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> But so originally they were going to kill like his Slim Razor was going to kill was going to kill them. all three of them and they never shot it. And honestly, I kind of like this better that they just leave. Oh, it's so much funnier. It's infinitely the better choice. Yeah. And by the end of the movie, it's like Jesse's house is burning down. And OK, for context, the police are all shooting at him. Right. So he's got to go somewhere. He can't like this is one of those cases where it's like you're not walking out that front door. No. It's the LAPD. <laughs> you're gone. <laughs> So he grabs his grandpa zombie mummy yeah. who is dying or dead already and walks like through the close encounters door to the cowboy dimension with his friends. And it's like, yeah, I would do that to fuck LA. Get out, like go to the go to the cowboy dimension if you don't want to yeah. deal with with the record industry people that are terrible. By the way, Kate is awful. Okay. That's another thing. His girlfriend. Oh, she's the worst character in the movie. She's the worst. She assaults him. Yeah. She assaults him in front of a bunch of people and then lays down on her couch and says, give me Valium. <laughs> Dude, this movie is bananas. It really is. It really is. And I, I feel like that we could go and on and on and on. I honestly, I think too much about this movie is the problem. But the, the, I, I relate really hard to that theme of like, we got to get out away from these people in LA. The problem right. is he, he brings this toxic friend with him and, so the actor who plays Charlie, Jonathan Stark, was in Fright Night, and he's really good in Fright Night. He okay. plays Jerry Dandridge's human familiar, but he's really good in that movie because he's he's supposed to be menacing and off-putting. Like, you're supposed to look at him and get a bad vibe. Right. And this is the thing. In this movie, you also get a bad vibe from him, but you're supposed to think he's charming. He's supposed to be he's supposed to be like Balky or some shit where he's just fun and goofy and just kind of hanging out off to the side. Yeah. He's like, the oh, I'm I'm the wild and crazy friend. I'm the I'm reckless and it's fun. It's a good time. The first time you meet him, he crashes his car into our protagonist's property while definitely driving. Truck. He falls out of that car. He can't stand up. Right. He's drunk the entire movie. This is the other thing. I kind of love the portrayal of Charlie and how much how terrible he is. He's selfish, thoughtless, ungrateful, mean-spirited, constantly talking shit to our protagonist who's supposed to be his best friend. Right. And he's drunk the whole time. And it's like this is actually a pretty accurate portrayal of alcoholism. Right. It really is. That's such a fucking funny way to look. Even like that Thanksgiving dinner, the dinner scene to me is the crux of the whole thing, because that feels like I don't know if you've ever been around like a parent or loved one on a bender who like you are in their weird world of madness and you get that moment to breathe. And you're like, yeah, this is kind of nice, even though you're surrounded by the most fucked up shit, because it's like, oh, I've just gone so far down the madness rabbit hole that now I think this is OK. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, if you think about it, aside from the crystal skull shit. Charlie is responsible for a lot of the problems in Jesse's life. Right. And it is that, yeah, it's the madness spiral of Charlie and like constantly being affected by that is, is Jesse's life. Right. And it's, I mean, I don't think that's on purpose. <laughs> I think they were genuinely just trying to be like, well, this is our idea of an eighties fun guy, best friend 
Right. And they accidentally created like a really harrowingly honest portrayal of toxic addiction. Right. Where it's like he's just charming enough that it takes you a while to realize, oh, this man is ruining his life and mine. Yeah. Yeah. And you never like him. Like, it's, no. <laughs> it's never charming. It's never that fun. It's just Not charming. Like, but just like he's he seems like he, he's like, I'm I'm this guy and I'm having yeah. fun, you know, and you're like, oh, you're not even having fun being you. I'm around because you got used to me. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> that's on you. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much weird stuff in this movie. There's like a whole farce scene. There's like a whole bedroom farce deal right. with like secret passages and shit. There's really lots of really good effects work in it. Props, stop motion. That was maybe the thing that caught me the most off guard about it is like once I realized what the movie was, I was like really preparing it for it to like have no budget and be like yeah. or like terrible on a technical level. It's really well done. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they had, like, Phil Tippett was was one of the stop-motion animators, and Chris Wallace, who's done effects for, I don't know, fucking everything, and who directed The Fly 2, and one of my favorites, The Vagrant. So, yeah, there was a lot of, like, talented people involved in, you know, almost the same level as Evil Dead 2, right. really, involved in the making of this, and it's just, like, the one thing it didn't have was Sam Raimi, you know, <laughs> or yeah, Kate I mean, Davis really, or Peter Deming. It really is two movies that seem to kind of be approaching sort of with a similar philosophy of like restraint is for nerds. Genre construct is boring. Let's just put every idea we have into this movie. And it's just yeah, it's a guy who had a really, really clear vision of that. And then a guy who had a little bit more ambition than he had skill level or talent level. But it, yeah, I, I will. It seems like did, so the director of this movie, did he go on to do a ton of other stuff? I'm going to guess not a ton and certainly probably nothing to this level. Yeah, I think this was the highest profile thing he might have done. Because if assuming that I'm right about this, you got to give him credit where it's like all right you get one shot of the movie and he made like five different movies you know it's like all right yeah. i might only get one kick at the can let's do my cowboy movie let's do my you know weird jungle adventure movie like he yeah. really kind of got everything he could in there well he, he so he was part of this group that worked together a lot that's the other thing is that you know sean cunningham and at this stage of the industry and this corner of the industry mm -hmm. you know the producers who had their usual crews Right. And they're usual people that, you know, people kind of just all work together. So like he wrote the screenplay for the first house. And because of that, he was able to direct this. And then he directed a Children of the Corn sequel in the 90s, okay. which I think he directed the most 90s one, which is the one that has like a Zappa and an Arquette in it. <laughs> oh, damn. And yeah, which is just like you get the ultimate 90s is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It doesn't get more 90s than a Zappa and an Arquette. Yeah, if you mash so, a Zappa and an Arquette together, they just turn into a bottle of Fruitopia. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So Jim Isaac worked on this, and he also directed Jason X. And there are other, like, Friday the 13th alumni involved in this. Kane Hodder was a stunt coordinator on this. He's also the guy in the gorilla suit. The I saw that when I was perusing the trivia. Yeah, so there's a lot of people that kind of just sort of work together. Like Chris Wallace. Like he worked on Return of the Jedi and I think Gremlins. A lot of like really like talented people who kind of yeah. like either spun out of this movie or kind of like it. Nobody making this movie is an idiot. It's just a weird world where it all collides to make this. Yeah. And it's all just it's this new world pictures put it out. So it's like they did a lot of weird stuff. And they had a lot of people working for them that, you know, I mean, that's the company Corman started. Right. So it's all like the weirder 
stuff is just business as usual for them. So you have these things that are kind of like, as you said, maybe a little more ambitious than they should be. Right. But it's still like they're all treating it like it's a job. Like it's all very workmanlike. So it's all right. competent and well done. And effects wise, some stuff might stand out and isolated performances might be really special. But the whole package is not going to be something like Evil Dead 2. And right. I think we'll run down a list of the things that the two films have in common in just a moment. But I think that what sets it apart is maybe the Sam Raimi of it or maybe the scrappiness of it, of Evil Dead 2. Yeah, you don't. If you got to have that, that spark, that kind of like that guy who has like a really distinct thing. So it's a little more than a workman like. I think Evil Dead 2 also has the benefit of being a sequel to such a one voice guy. Like, like I'm assuming House, the original, was also kind of part of this. The, this sort of Roger Corman world kind of it was not Evil Dead one where it was just a love of the game passion project. Exactly. The legacies of each uh, right. series come into play here because, yeah, Evil Dead was outsider art. It was punk rock. It was right. a pioneer. It was like fucking outside of the system. We're going to mess stuff up like splatterpunk, whereas, you know, House was still in the industry and doing some interesting different things. But like more of the we're making a horror movie to play in theaters to get money so we can make more movies kind of a deal. Right. So it doesn't quite have that youthful like hunger that Evil Dead has. So Right. What if you're if you're Dino De Laurentiis and you look at like the first Evil Dead, you're like, all right, that guy had no money and we he did whatever he wanted and he made a movie everybody gave a shit about. Here's a little bit of money. I'm going to leave you alone. Do whatever you want because you seem to understand what you're doing and that'll make me a little bit of money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, more of a taking a chance on, but with enough proof to back it up. Yeah, enough proof that you're like, I trust to let this guy, like, I don't have to micromanage and breathe over his shoulder about every, like, decision. Mm -hmm. And House 2 was sort of just like, well, we're doing kind of what the first movie did, but not as dark. Right. And the one thing that this movie does have in common, too, with House 1 outside of the Cheers cast and the whatever, is that the crux of the third act drama conflict is a macho betrayal coming back to haunt a character in house two it's slim razor who gramps betrayed over this crystal skull and murdered right that's another one of my favorite parts in the movie the is Slim razor is right like <laughs> Grips, grip there's like this unresolved trauma bit where they're like what happened to slim razor and he's like oh i shot him yeah. <laughs> I, I killed him and left him to die in the Mojave Desert. Anyway, I'm going to tell you a bunch of stories now. We're not going to think about what I just yeah. said. I'm going to drink a beer. Dance yeah. with a girl. You can't be mad at me. I sound like the voice at the beginning of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In House One, the betrayal is a Vietnam War thing, and it's Richard Mull. It's zombie Vietnam vet Richard Mull. What the fuck? <laughs> and it is awesome. Okay, that, now I actually want to watch the first one because at first I was like, well, I'm done with this franchise. But now I'm like, all right, but if it's about Nom. Oh, it's great. William Cat is the lead and he plays this like shell-shocked PTSD vet and he's trying. He's a horror writer and it's, it's really good. You know what the funniest thing to me about House 2 is like to have the audacity to make this movie and have the title be House. Like it's... <laughs> It's the most boring title that couldn't possibly give you a whiff of anything that's coming. Yeah. But I will tell you, the the art, the poster art for the first house movie 
was one of the scariest things I saw when I was a kid. For some reason, that that cover art, that poster art really bothered me. I'm looking it up just when I was a kid. Okay, I could see that. And then, of course, I watched it and was like, what the fuck was I thinking? Right. (laughs) But I the first house is better than house two. Okay. And I don't want to like, you know, if you're one of those people that grew up with this movie and you love it. That's great. There's a lot to like in it. I, Royal Dano's performance is incredible. John Ratzenberger is so good. so good in it. And you, he makes it seem like this. He actually explicitly says that he's done this before. Right. He has a sword in his toolbox. <laughs> and he sells it so well that you're like, I get I was like, he must be a character from the first one. Like, nope. Because he walks into the movie like he's the guy you've been waiting to see show up yeah. in the movie. <laughs> When he smashes that light bulb. Uh, it must be foreign made. <laughs> must be foreign made. Like, ah, oh, so good. Yeah, what you got there is an alternate universe. <laughs> I got to be home. It's my kid's Little League night. Like, as he's... Another thing I love about it, this is a great character detail. He's sword fighting these guys, and he doesn't stab one. When he finishes one off, he doesn't yeah. run through him. He just, like, pokes him. It's just yeah, like just a like little, like... Yeah, he in. Yeah, I'm going to hurt you, but I'm not going to kill you. I got a rule. I don't kill. Bill, Bill Tonner doesn't kill. Yeah. <laughs> He's like Spider-Man. Like, I've worked on enough things where it's like you're trying to explain, like, a script that somebody hasn't read the whole thing of to them, like, on the day to shoot. And they're like, <laughs> and they're just sort of like, wait, wait, but what? Why am I doing? And you're just like, you're trying to get across this very simple idea to people who don't care. And it's annoying. The fact that somebody had to explain the idea of where we are in the movie House 2 to John Ratzenberger <laughs> and be like, all right, so this is what you're doing. You're an interdimensional electrician with a sword. And we're in a house, but then we're in a temple. And he's just like, yeah, I got that. And then just nails it like he's insane. And he nails the fight stuff, too. Like he kicks and swashbuckles. And you're like, John Ratzenberger, action star, question mark. It's the reverse Bruce Campbell effect where he's so good when he shows up. I'm mad at the movie that he has not been in it, if not the main character the whole time. Well, that yeah, that's the other thing. It's like. You see him in this movie and you're like, that's the character I want now. Like why going for, okay, I get the desire to do an anthology series. Now just give us movies about this guy or a show. Give me a TV series, a monster of the week TV series. (laughs) That's Bill Towner electrician hunting interdimensional creatures. It's always just him going to a different house, trying to fix like, Oh yeah, my light switch won't go on, but also there's a werewolf for some reason. And he's got to keep (laughs) dealing with a different thing while also being just a sort of blue collar working guy and getting to his kid's soccer game or whatever. Yeah. Who doesn't want that? Yeah. So yeah, I think we'll leave some meat on this bone. Yeah. There's still a lot we haven't covered. So like still go watch the movie. Yeah. Still watch it. I mean, or don't. I, <laughs> Look, if it's it is worth watching just for the sheer insanity of the fact that it exists. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely worth seeing for that. It's definitely worth seeing for some of the effects work. The production design's really good. Yeah. Greg Fonseca did the first two Nightmare on Elm Street movies as well. Oh wow, okay. So production designer knew what he was doing. Good effects work, good animation. It's just yeah, it's worth it's definitely worth seeing. Right. It's not the you know singular masterpiece that evil dead 2 is <laughs> no it's it ranks a little below evil dead 2 in terms <laughs> just of a, just sequels. A <laughs> but hey it made more money in the box office in america that means it's the better movie so yeah. that's you know the box office does a lie dollars yeah. don't lie yeah sorry we're doing nine more houses <laughs> <laughs> god damn it 
I kind of do want to live. In the, I want to go into the house so I can go to the alternate dimension where House was a successful franchise, not Evil Dead. That's so funny. And <laughs> see, like the TV show that's Ash versus Evil Dead with yeah. Bruce Campbell, but it's John Ratzenberger coming back, and it's Bill versus the Evil House. Look, man, we could just rip off this idea and make this show. Like, we'll, Why not? Find, a, we'll find a different Cheers cast member. It won't be plagiarism. <laughs> Ted Danson can't be busy Ted, anymore. Ted I think Danson, they canceled yeah. Good Place. They canceled the Mr. Mayor show or whatever he was on. We'll get yeah. Ted Danson. We'll, you know, he's he's big. People like him again. Yeah. And he, he's not an electrician. Plumber. Why there you not? Go. Well, yeah. Spooky Mario. There we go. We just There you go. That's <laughs> the show. Spooky Mario. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. I want to explain myself. I, I think I already nodded to it a few times, but the reason I chose this movie is because it's another horror comedy made in 1987 that's trying some of the same stuff, not as successfully. Right. But it's there are a lot of connective elements that I think are worth pointing out. I always make a list and then just read it. Every now and then I'm like, I should just ask the guest to, to yeah. name what they I'm, think is there. I mean, I've definitely got a few. I think everything you just said, horror comedy, 1987, I think they are both playing with the idea of like, okay, it's what you would think of as a movie set in one location that is about like a air quotes haunted house and yeah. then subverting that in a lot of different directions. I think they weirdly both have like flip sides of the same ending. Evil Dead 2 ends with him going, ah, oh, shit, I'm in the desert in the past. And House 2 ends with, fuck yeah, I'm a cowboy. <laughs> they end up in an alternate dimension that looks suspiciously like the Bronson Canyon in Los Angeles. <laughs> God, what else? I mean, like, aside from, like, the sort of surface level stuff, the sheer lack of restraint and the everything but the kitchen sink mentality and the mm -hmm. sort of weird kind of unhinged nature of both of them, I think, is very, very similar. Obviously uh, aimed in different directions to different levels of success, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do. I do love that they both have the same ending, but with different. You know, yeah. one, they're both the protagonists are trapped in the past, right? In both films, in fact, a, like an often romanticized through our media past, but one is by choice and one is fuck. <laughs> How did well, I get here? Well, one has lost everything and is yeah. like, okay, my whole life is destroyed and now I'm I have to go fight demons in the past. And the other one's like, I don't know, man, I got away from the cops. I have a hotter girlfriend now. <laughs> I somehow have this cool wagon. Yeah. My shitty friend is still here and we're going to have to deal with that at some point, but Yeah, but I don't know, he'll get consumption or something. We'll figure it out. <laughs> I wonder if the implication is that he's going to kill his friend in the same way that Gramps killed Slim Razor, possibly oh, shit, in the future, go. which would be nice. Because the cycle I mean, continues. Yeah, Gramps is an alcoholic as well. Yeah, both films have an undead family member. In one, it's a matriarch, and the other, it's a patriarch. Both include important documents in a basement. Oh, both yeah. feature a framed gift of sorts. Both have grave digging scenes. It's just that in one, it's to rob a grave, and in the other, it's to bury your girlfriend. Sure. Both feature shadows on the wall in important ways. Both have men approaching danger holding guns slowly. I mean, that's a lot of movies. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just funny because when I noticed it in House 2, in the beginning of the movie, I was like, oh, yeah, Evil Dead 2's got that as well. Then House 2 never stops doing it. Like right. there's four different characters, I think, that do this. And one of those characters does it 
three times with like three different guns. It's, yeah. He has an Uzi at one point. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. This movie loves walking towards uncertainty with a gun. Both feature a religious artifact stolen from its original people. Here's my question. Why Why didn't you just let the Aztecs have the skull back? It was their skull, right? Let them have it. Yeah, but it looked like sick as hell. So fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. But his whole thing was like, we have to protect the skull from the forces of evil that are always trying to get it. But right. then in the end, he literally just leaves it on Gramps' grave and walks away. And is like, did we forget about the forces of evil? Yeah, nah, but I shot that guy, so it's fine now. Yeah, and it's unclear kind of in both movies how it works, but the artifact arguably may or may not reanimate the dead with its power. Yeah. There's mirror stuff in both, stop motion sequences, really great stop motion sequences in both. Yes. Both have a complicated relationship to the previous film. One completely ignores the previous film and the other tries to remake the previous film. <laughs> Oh, I, both of them have this, the wrestling move of, so, of a big, of somebody <laughs> lifting somebody up over their Chuck head em. and then throwing them. Oh, yeah. If a movie's got that, it's got that going for it at the very least. I, I, I did forget how many times in Evil Dead 2 is somebody just throws a lady at some <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> poor like, Sarah Barry just slams against that wall. Hitting a lady always, like, even when it's done in like a big silly way, always feels a little cringy to me. But like when you yeah. throw a lady, I'm like, ah, that's a, that's a funny thing to do to a lady. Yeah. Like not in real life, but in a movie. Like, yeah, yeah it's fine. Yeah. It's not nearly as jarring as a slap in the mouth. <laughs> it's where the cheer gets stabbed by like a dismembered hand. I'm like, well, that's yeah. just funny. But if you yeah. slap her, I'm like, oh, heavens. No, don't My do girls. that. <laughs> you might hurt her. Yeah. <laughs> Both movies feature a character whose parents were killed by an evil force. Yeah. Both feature a protagonist that at one point appears incredibly unhinged to the characters around it. <laughs> Both feature a protagonist going headfirst through a pane of glass. It's way funnier in Evil, De in Evil Dead 2. Although in House 2... It's pretty fucking funny. It's pretty funny because he just does it on his own. He doesn't need to do that at he all. He doesn't have to do it. That, that might have been the like the hardest I laughed at House 2. I was just like, I don't know what I thought was about to happen, but it certainly was not you jumping face first through a window. <laughs> yeah, what was that? Yeah, open it or like break it with a shoe or something. Yeah. And my personal favorite, the jalapenos on this plate of nachos for me, is okay. this connection. Both movies feature a headless body waving a weapon around. Yep. <laughs> a plus. Yeah. A plus. You give me a decapitated corpse just swinging a chainsaw or a gun or, I mean, nunchucks too would be great. Whatever. Oh, yeah. Just anything that's like, I can't see shit, but I want to kill shit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you got to admire the passion. Like. Yeah. If I yeah. have no head, I'm not doing anything. Yeah, this this thing is dangerous on several levels, whether it means to be or not. Yeah. If anything, it's more dangerous now. Yeah. <laughs> at least with a head, if it didn't want to kill me, it could aim at the other guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So those are, I think, the many things that these two films have in common in addition to, you know, the overall deal. Now, here's the other important question. Okay. I think we already know what you think of House 2. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. How do you feel like the the double feature worked? Did it work for you? Was it a good pairing? It actually it did it did work for me because it was interesting seeing sort of the the cautionary tale of like the 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 bad impulse version of Evil Dead Two. Yeah, no, I think they pair really interestingly together. I will say, like like we talked a little bit about, you know, if there's like a devoted fan base to this movie, we don't want to offend them or whatever. I could absolutely see how somebody watches this movie and has a weird love and reverence for it. And I think both movies are very silly, but there's also something 
beyond just the surface silliness that you can cling on to. Yeah, I think they both have depth. Yeah. But I also do think that, you know, like we've, I think, said several times, one of these films, you see it as a kid and you love it and you watch it again as an adult and you're like, oh, it's still great. One of them right. you see it as a kid. And I again, I totally understand if you saw this movie at like seven years old or even like in your teens or early yeah. 20s. Well, if I saw this when I was like, a kid, I'm sure I would have like a soft spot for it. But I saw it for the first time at 33. <laughs> Not quite the same as watching Evil Dead 2 for the first time. A little late for caterpupper exposure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't get a caterpupper plush toy now. Right. But yeah, with stuff like this, especially where it's like one is definitely of a a different quality set than the other. It's like, I don't know which goes first. Because, you know, you might watch Evil Dead 2 and you're like, oh, that was fucking amazing. Now it's time for dessert. And you're like, okay, well. It's it's watch it's, house two first if you're going to do a cookie, this double feature. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. House two is the one to start with probably. Right. But yeah, I'm glad it worked for you. I was really kind of proud of this pick. <laughs> when I came up with it. Shockingly, it, it's the most like makes sense pairing, but also like it takes you like five minutes to realize, oh, that did make sense because you're just vibrating with confusion after you watch house two. Yeah. And it's a confusion that it's a confusion that sticks with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have to vibrate it out. You have to write it out uh, afterwards. I've watched plenty of shitty horror movies. Like I've never watched one that was this bad. That was also this compelling. Where I'm like, I wanna, I wanna talk for three hours to everyone who made this movie. <laughs> where yeah. I'm just like, I don't like this, but I want to know if you do, and I want to know why. <laughs> Yeah, where were you coming from? Yeah, are you okay now? Because certainly not then. Yeah, and I just, I'm a big fan of any movie that, you know, keeps moving and, yeah. and doesn't really stop to make you think too much about. That's that's my that's my one ask from a movie that isn't going to at least, you know, I don't know how to say this, but the movies that don't have more on their mind necessarily. Yes. Like, if you don't take up a lot of my time, we're cool. Yeah, you know, get in, get out. Don't explain the lore to me. I'll figure it out. I know when a thing is a bad thing because it's glowing or whatever. Like, just keep going. <laughs> yeah, just get get to the fireworks factory. Yeah, is there a zombie horse? Great, perfect. Yeah, cool, done. It's Source. less than eighty-eight minutes. Sure, <laughs> I think it's a good one. But again, Evil Dead Two is just like Evil Dead Fucking Two, right? I do feel a little bad that like you thought you were going to be getting this like, oh, it's this is so much funnier than what I thought was going to happen because I was worried I was going to I was like, Andy's way smarter than me, so I'm going to have to try not to sound stupid while we talk about some like very pretentious Italian like horror movie or something. I'm like, oh, no, this is a pile of shit. I'm able to talk about this. What you learned was that I am, in fact, not smarter than you, (laughs) but you have glasses. That's the rules. All right, so what what do you got going on, Keith? What's new? What's new with me? Uh, not a lot, man. I'm doing the podcast. This is not a show. It's available on all platforms with Tom Goss. I'm doing more stand-up lately. I'm going to be touring probably later this year, but follow me on social media and shit. If you want to see where I'll be, I'm at Keith Tells Jokes on everything. Nice. At Keith Tells Jokes. Boom, boom, boom. Awesome. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, dude, this was this was super fun. I'm sorry it took so long to do it, but this was rad. Yeah, I'm glad we got to do it. And next time I'll recommend something, you know, whether or not it's a show, I'll just text you like <laughs> stuff that I think is actually good. 
I am vowing right now I will never watch a good movie you like on this podcast. <laughs> like I'll watch it if it's my idea, but I only want you to recommend me crap. Okay. Like, you got yeah, you, yeah. that's the Andy Sell guarantee. I'm the you bad know, movie guy. <laughs> you're the bad movie guy. You're yeah. who I'm gonna give if if look if Bill Maher's in it. Oh and I'm the Bill Maher. Yeah. That was the thing too. When I came up with House Two and I was a little guilty about it, I was like you know, if there's one person I want to talk to about this movie, it's Keith Carey. I was watching the opening credits of the movie and I'm like, okay, I don't really know what's going on here, but this looks. And then I just saw his name come up and I just went, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a name you want to see come up. No, when not you're about especially. to watch a movie. Yeah. It's like, it, wait, even if you like him as a comedian, not really known for being the most exciting actor. You know what I mean? No. <laughs> He looks like a fucking toddler in this movie. It's so he's, weird. He's such an un, he's the perfect guy to play this part because he's the most unlikable man I've ever looked at in this movie. Yeah, he is. He is. He oozes just hateable. It's yeah. just it's just coming off of him just like stink lines. Grease. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for being a part of this, Keith. Go check out his podcast with Tom. Follow him on his socials. Listener. Thanks for listening. Class deceased. deceased.